0: In the late summer of 1361, a group of 60 weary and tired fugitives sat atop a hill. They were accompanied by an almost equal number of other small yet hardy looking horses that munched away on the scant grasses that popped up here and there in the largely barren landscape. Barren and deep in the desert region of Chorazam in what today would be considered Central Asia, or more specifically, southwestern Uzbekistan. As the sun peaked over the horizon, the clear and cloudless sky above promised another dry and arid day. And while it was chilly now, this would give way to an unrelenting heat. But this group, they were used to living under harsh conditions. In the early morning light, They sat around a series of campfires after having prayed their devotions. They were now breaking their fast on the meager supplies that they had on hand. Around the central fire pit sat the most seasoned and battle-hardened horsemen of the small group, renewing their argument from the night before about their next steps for reclaiming their homeland. The two loudest and most respected voices belonged to Timur and Hussein. Although they were similar in age and appearance and united in their goals for now, in terms of temperament, these men could not be any more different. Hussein, he was officially the leader with the best claim of rulership and he led with an iron fist using fear and intimidation tactics and was always first at the feeding trough. Whereas Timur, technically the second in command, well, he was cut from a different cloth. The eyes behind his tanned and leathery face, as a result of the bulk of his lifetime being spent out in the open step, were shrewdly calculating and wise beyond his years. He also had a bit of a ruthless streak when the situation called for it, and was clearly comfortable in the field having fostered strong relationships with the soldiers that were surrounding them. That morning, however, the two leaders were again unable to agree on the path forward. The 25-year-old tall and broad-chested Timur, he rose from his seat near the campfire and walked over to the edge of the rocky hillside that he had picked out for the group. It offered an excellent defensible position and a 360-degree view of the cracked, dry, and light-brown surrounding landscape beyond. He snorted with disdain and shook his head. Fugitives, he thought with irony. A newly minted label given by the mogul Khan that now occupied his homeland of Transoxiana. Despite the discomfort that was apparent among the group, about the future implications of such a label. If Timur felt this, he showed no signs to those around him. He was calm. Under the surface, however, his mind aflame, working through options, scenarios, and potential outcomes. During his lifetime thus far, he had navigated so many difficult challenges already. And although there had been some missteps, he was determined to learn from them and figure out a way to climb out of the figurative hole that they now found themselves in. As his steely gaze surveyed the desert landscape that projected out in all directions surrounding them. In the distance, he saw plumes of dust rising out into the air in the horizon. Timur sprang into action and roared out commands to the group to ready themselves for battle. And in moments was ready himself, sitting astride his horse, composite bow out in hand, awaiting the enemy's arrival. As the Mogul Khanats horsemen came into view, Timur estimated that they would be outnumbered roughly ten to one. And now, surrounded on the hill with no place to escape, the situation was dire. But if Timur felt this, he showed no signs to those around him. Hi and welcome to the Warlords of History Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Pimenta. The focus of this podcast is on people. Those defined by the term warlord. Fascinating warriors and leaders that made a huge impact in history. Some with more lasting effects and others that were relatively short-lived but perhaps no less interesting. That said, When I select a particular warlord, I plan to of course review their lifetime and actions, but also take this further by looking at the environmental and political conditions right before their lifetime. We'll explore their motivations for taking on the mantle of war. We'll cover what they did and how they did it. And finally, what their legacy was beyond their demise. But with the caveat, that I'm going to look beyond the mainstream historical figures that everyone knows about by taking on lesser-known subjects, such as the feature of this episode, Amir Timur, better known in the West as Tamand. I'm always really quite amazed of how few people know about Timur. It's probably due to his notoriety being somewhat eclipsed as a result of Genghis Khan, the Great Khan, and his illustrious achievements, who had died about 100 years before Timur's birth. He's known historically by various names, including Timur the Lame, Timur Lang, and Tamerlane, These are really just disambiguations of his name due to the crippling injuries that he had sustained in his youth. He also embodied a number of monikers beyond his name that evolved throughout his lifetime. Labels such as Brigand, Turncloak, Fugitive, Prisoner, Amir meaning General. And then we get to some pretty lofty titles. Sword of Islam, last great conqueror of the Eurasian steppe, lending to this notion that his was a life with many, many facets. His name, Timur, means iron in the ancestral language of his homeland, a region called Transoxiana, centered in the modern-day city of Samarkand in Uzbekistan quite fitting given the physical demands and harsh realities of life out in the open steppe. Summers being extremely hot and dry, while winters are excessively cold and unhospitable. Sweeping grasslands that are largely unable to sustain any meaningful farming activities, and that are best suited for grazing lands for horses and sheep. Timur was a Turco Mongol, or Tatar, Warrior arising out of Central Asia who founded the short lived Timurid Empire. When he started out, he hadn't been bestowed with a massive empire of riches. He rose out of relative obscurity with limited resources and influence to actually carve out an immensely impressive empire. He's regarded to be one of the greatest military leaders and tacticians in history, and he was also rather opportunistic using things like his Islamic faith, Mongol heritage, strategic marriages, and ancestry in varying degrees, in varying capacities, to justify his position, his attacks, and his conquests. He was rather adept at using tools like psychological warfare, a rather impressive intelligence and spy network, and strategic brilliance to read and exploit fluid political situations along with sheer strength of arms to achieve spectacular results. But there was also a notable dark side, wherein he held no reservations at all about ordering ruthless and ghastly acts, such as heaping mountains of skulls made of vanquished foes, and cementing people alive into walls or towers, employing any means at his disposal to spur cities to submit to his will, and discourage rebellion once they were conquered. His conquests allowed him to carve out one of the biggest empires that the world had seen, including modern-day Uzbekistan, the Southern Caucasus, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, much of Central Asia, as well as parts of contemporary India, Pakistan, Syria, and Turkey, accounting for an area of roughly 44 million square kilometers. His feared armies wreaked havoc and devastation throughout these lands. And during his 68-year lifetime of almost constant warfare and campaigning, this resulted in the death of an estimated 17 million people. An astounding figure, being that this accounted for approximately 5% of the world's population at the time. I have to admit, I struggled to land on exactly where this story should start, thinking about the environment in which Timur arose and forged his empire. Prior to really understanding and digging into this topic, my inclination was to lean on any information surrounding the Mongols and Genghis Khan, and this certainly played a role in the story that we'll be covering here today. But I came to realize that there is much, much more than that. All I had in mind was the notion of nomadic step-dwellers that subscribe to shamanism, surrounding nature and the worship of Tengri, the sky god. As I started learning more about Timur, one thing became clear to me right away. You don't come up with a title like Sword of Islam for nothing. Really, that is one lofty title, Sword of Islam, bestowed on a religious warrior striking blows against the infidels as a weapon in God's hand. But the interesting thing is, this notion of a warrior destined by God to vanquish infidels was employed, at least in my opinion, in an opportunistic manner, being that much of the campaigning year upon year throughout his reign was directed towards fellow Muslim nations. It was one of the many justifications that he used to create a reason for warfare and toppling other empires, thus adding to his own. But he also later used this as a justification for his leadership, being that Timur lacked a direct ancestral linkage to Genghis Khan. This was an important, or better yet, essential threshold For being recognized as a ruler of these lands. And a theme that we're going to continually see surfacing throughout Timur's story. What a brilliant PR spin, really. If you can't link your authority through ancestry to Genghis Khan, what better way than linking your authority through God? So when exactly did Islam arrive in Central Asia? It began in the mid-700s via the Abbasid's caliphate's rolling conquests into Central Asia, stemming out from the Middle East and moving further eastwards, battling the Chinese Tang Dynasty for control of the region. This was the prime mechanism through which Islam was introduced, continuing well into the 10th century, where cities including Samarkand, Bukhara, and Urgench, flourished as centers of Islamic learning culture and art. In the 13th century, the Mongol invasion halted the process for about a half century. However, this intervention was not enough to diminish the hold of Islam in the region, although some pockets of shamanism did remain. Following Genghis Khan's forging of the Mongol Eurasian Empire in the late 12th and early 13th centuries, upon his demise, This huge swath of land was divided amongst his sons and grandsons. While each of these territories were quite large in their own right, they were still just pieces of a fragmented empire, with no rulers that had the ability to unify and lead. Each of these regions, of course, having their own strategic aims, objectives, and struggles, Of course, there are some benefits to a smaller divided empire, being able to focus efforts in concentrated areas and deal with regional issues. However, this notion of dividing up these lands ultimately resulted in weaker empires. These territories began to further degrade and split due to wars of succession as the grandchildren of the Great Khan disputed and then fell into bloody purges. This was the environment into which Timur was born. Timur was born on April 9, 1336, in Transoxiana, near the region of Kesh, in modern-day Uzbekistan, around 80 kilometers south of Samarkand, within the territory of what was then known as the Chattagai Khanat. He was a member of the Barlas, a Mongolian tribe. His father, Taragai, was described as a minor noble of his tribe, not especially powerful, but reasonably wealthy and influential. And while the details of his upbringing are rather unclear, it's very likely that in his early childhood that he would have been immersed heavily into training that would arm him with the horsemanship and martial skills that would serve him his entire life like all Mongolian children growing up at that time, learning to ride a horse as early as he could walk, and firing that renowned composite bow, hunting animals on the steppe, honing his craft. His early years would have also involved a thorough indoctrination into the Islamic religion. And although he was illiterate, he was reportedly rather clever and clearly understood and internalized the tenets of the faith, not to mention that he was also an avid player of a Mongolian chess-like game, and he actually spoke several languages. As I mentioned earlier, despite his reasonably wealthy family, life on the unrelenting step was a harsh existence. At some point in his early teens, Timur started showing emerging signs of natural leadership and bravery. He led a small band of followers that were actively raiding merchants, travelers, and other tribes for goods, especially animals such as sheep, horses, and cattle, to augment his and his family's flocks and overall wealth. He grew up in an area called Kesh. Kesh was only a relatively short ride away from Samarkand, a city that was essentially a fixture on the famed Silk Road. This, of course, regularly offered up attractive targets to increase one's wealth by pilfering those traveling merchants. By the time Timur was about 19 years old, his first two sons were born. Jahangir, his eldest, followed shortly afterwards by Omar Sheikh. Through his family's holdings and his raiding activities, his family had amassed a great deal of wealth, raising their station and attracting the attention of the de facto ruler of the Chattagai Amir Kazagan, who would have certainly been aware of Timur's growing martial prowess. Kazagan was a leader of the powerful Karaunas tribe, a Mongol people who had settled in northern Afghanistan. Roughly ten years prior, he invaded Transoxiana, killing and deposing the ruling Chatagai Khan. Due to his lineage, he was unable to install himself as Khan. So, he made sure to set up a puppet Khan with Kazagan in the background holding the strings, a practice that Timur himself took notes on and would employ into the future. To everyone at the time, it was abundantly clear who was holding the reins of the Chatagai Khanat as it was to Timur's father, who used his growing influence and attention as an opportunity to gain favor with Amir Kazagan by pledging Timur to his court. Kazagan accepted and immediately took a strong liking to the brash young Timur. Shortly after accepting Timur into his service, a disturbance to the southwest of Transoxiana arose. In the form of a raiding party, from neighboring Khorasan, which is in modern day northeastern Iran, that had invaded the region for plunder. This was the perfect opportunity for Kazagan to test out his new charge, being that this was exactly the type of activity that Temur was familiar with. Kazagan gave Temur his first command, ordering him to stop the marauding force of invaders. Timur gathered his warriors and pursued with haste and is quickly able to catch up with this invading force, being that they were slowed and weighed down with plunder. Demonstrating his keen eye and ability to identify the ideal battleground, Timur organized an ambush and laid in wait. As the raiders from Khorasan plodded on by, he commanded his troops and himself took part in a series of aggressive charges that ended up exploding into a short but furious battle, with the enemy being taken completely by surprise and quickly dispersed. Timur returned to Kazagan and was received as a hero, to such a degree that the emir opened his arms and his family to him, marrying him off to one of his granddaughters. In the spring of the following year, Kazagan was looking to exact retribution on Khorasan for the raids from the previous year that Timur had mopped up. He sent an envoy to the city of Herat, known as the Pearl of Khorasan, demanding compensation from its ruler, Melek Hussein Guri, for the damages caused, but received no response. Infuriated, Kazagan ordered his armies to assemble, assigning his rising star and newly minted grandson-in-law as the initial thrust of the expeditionary force. Timur was given his second command of a thousand horsemen and took to this position with great ambition, also spending time to establish strong bonds with his soldiers. He always made sure that his force was well equipped and well fed. Maintaining high morale was an important agenda item, so he always spent a great deal of time interacting with his men in the field, particularly eating his meals with them, also giving him a good pulse on the concerns and mood of the group. Timur's group formed the advance guard of a much larger army. He would go forward, with Kazagan falling behind with the bulk of the forces. As Timur made his way to Herat, he persuaded, with the promise of plunder, additional smaller clans and tribes to join his cause. Timur and his commission entered into Khorasan and set up camp in the mountainous region in the vicinity of Herat, showing a clear intent of always retaining favorable grounds for his forces and taking his time to identify the ideal landscape for the upcoming battle. And then he sat tight, allowing Amir Kazagan's army to catch up. Melek's forces were out in the field before them, drawn up behind a low wall outside the city, seemingly hastily raised up, and with weaknesses that Timur and Kazagan were confident that could be exploited once they moved beyond the fortifications. Kazagan ordered Timur to lead the vanguard and commence the attack. Using the time-honored, yet completely effective Mongolian tradition of the feigned retreat, skirmishes began with Timur's forces gently falling further and further back, emboldening the Khorasan forces to surge forward and move further and further away from their fortifications, but in doing so, becoming increasingly unorganized. As the unorganized Khorasan charge advanced, when they were sufficiently disorganized and chaotic, Timur turned his troops around, triggering Kazagan to commit his forces into the fray, including left and right wings that completely flanked Melek's disorganized army with furious charges. Melek's army was quickly overrun and fell apart, retreating with haste back to the fortifications and the city walls but losing a huge contingent of their forces in the retreat. Timur and Kazagan riding the wave of momentum, pressed their initiative and completely overran the fortifications outside of the city. Shortly after, commencing with an attack on the city of Herat itself. The following day, the attack on the city continued and Melik soon raised the white flag of surrender. Melik agreed to pay a heavy tribute, promised with the delivery in person, back to Samarkand in one month's time from then. Kazgan, with the bulk of the army, then returned back to Samarkand, with Timur and his one thousand plus horsemen being charged with staying behind to ensure that Melik complied with his promise of surrender and tribute. During this month though, Timur was not idle, and continued to wreak havoc in Khorasan, further weakening any forms of resistance in the area. And, a month afterwards, true to his word, Timur accompanied Melek back to Samarkand, wherein payment as promised was rendered. With Kaz again, now in a firm position of power in Transoxiana, he now started to look outside of his territory for opportunities for conquest, eyeing the Kingdom of Khwarizm to the northwest of the Chadagai lands, and initially looking to his grandson-in-law to lead the charge. However, Timur had some other ideas. He was aware that this was gonna be a very difficult endeavor. The Korzem people were in possession of strong fortifications, and they had a sizable army too. Unlike the previous instances, Instead of jumping headlong into the breach, he started to concoct a plan. A propaganda spin, if you will, that emphasized that the kingdom of Choresm was ripe for conquest. And that it would be a relatively easy endeavor. This is because he wanted someone else to be charged with the initial foray into Choresm. Scheming that he would go in afterwards to help mop up and use his army to take over the war-weary kingdom. As a result, he was able to plant this seed with key members of Kazagan's court before approaching the emir himself, advising him that it's his son that should be taking on this mission so he can win fame for the family and himself, especially being that he was his successor. Kazagan agreed wholeheartedly, and set abdullah off towards victory the problem is abdullah was relatively inexperienced in facing a prepared and dug-in foe and evidently this was too much for abdullah and he was unable to make hardly any headway at all and in fact soon found himself and his army in a very tenuous situation far into enemy territory depleted and tired and surrounded, unable to march back. As planned, Kazagan shortly thereafter called upon Timur to help his son and salvage the dire situation. At the head of a large force, Timur rode into Khorizam. However, he couldn't engage them to meet in for a pitched battle. And he didn't want to try his hand at storming all these strongholds, because that's essentially what did Abdullah in instead opting to make overtures to the nomadic chiefs in the area, convincing them to join the cause. He then used these united tribes as a bargaining tool, having the most influential meet with the governors of the forts and convince them to give up, which they did, one by one, resulting in an impressive takeover that was relatively bloodless a masterstroke of diplomacy that led to the reigning in of Khwarezm. Timur and Abdullah returned to Samarkand victorious, but it was clear to all exactly who had owned the victory. Things were really looking good for Timur at this point, and he was becoming a notable force in his own right. He was admired and awarded for his bravery and skill at arms, And most importantly, he had the favor of the ruling emir, which was the key ticket allowing him to increase his wealth and station in life. A couple of months later, however, Timur's world came crashing down around him. As emir Kazagan, Timur's benefactor, was assassinated while out on a hunt. Assassinated by another prominent noble of the Karunas tribe, who'd been deeply offended for being denied a prominent military position. In 1359, following Kazagan's death, the Chattagay Khanna was a fragmented mess of alliances and claimants to power. Tribes making and breaking alliances, all in view of occupying the seat of authority that Kazagan once held. Kazagan's son, the poor and misled, Abdullah had been found to be lacking in leadership qualities. As soon as he attempted to claim his father's seat, he was quickly cast aside by the three most powerful tribal chiefs in Transoxiana. These included Haji Beg of the Barlas, the same tribe that Timur belonged to, Seldas of the Ulus, and Bayezid of the Jalir. These three men decided to work together and formed a triumvirate of sorts. Timur, for the time being, smartly recognized and submitted to Haji Beg's leadership, being in no position of strength or influence to attempt a play for the leadership of the tribe. It was around this time that his father, Taragai, passed away. Timur wasn't in a position to play the political game for the time being, so he busied himself with his family's estate and lands in cash. A couple of months into this little reprieve, a grandson of Kazgan, Hussein, wrote a letter to Timur requesting his assistance. He was seeking the inheritance of his grandfather, meaning that he was essentially canvassing for allies to help him take over the Chattagai Khanate. Hussein grasped at anything he could possibly think of to convince Timur to help him, also emphasizing the importance of family duty, being that they were essentially now related with one of Timur's wives also being Hussein's sister. Timur had some concerns, though, and there were three big tribes already at the helm, really, in the region. Timur already had a high enough profile as it was But the main difference being, at least at this point, is he didn't have the military strength to back up that profile and certainly not to take on the big three. So he didn't want to get into their crosshairs. On the other hand, in Hussein, he also saw a potential ally that could really play an important future role in helping him regain his important position. For now... Timur supported him and helped Hussein instead take over the city of Balkh and its surrounding territory in modern-day northwestern Afghanistan, helping him to gain a foothold in the region and act as a starting point for this rightful heir to claim his grandfather's seat. This arrangement would at least give Timur a significant role in the Chattagai Khanat instead of being reduced to the periphery or killed outright by the big three that ...must have at least seen him to some degree as a threat, which was quite a smart move. It was close enough to Cash to be effective as an ally, but not directly in the sphere of influence of the big three that now controlled the entire region of the Chattagai Khanna. And evidently a strong friendship was established between the two men, along with a future commitment to help each other with their long-term goals... Following this event, Haji Beg issued out an urgent command that Timur return back to Kesh. to which he wisely complied with, being that there was an external threat facing their homeland. With Kazagan's death and the disputes that followed regarding the leadership within the region, this regime change presented the perfect opportunity for an invasion from the outside. Cue the entry of Tugulu Timur, the Mughal Khan and descendant of the great Genghis Khan. As a side note, going forward, I'll just refer to him as Tugulu to avoid any confusion. Mogulistan, also known as the Mughal Khanat, was just east of the Chadagai lands, an area of the world that today includes parts of Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and parts of northwest China. Togulu judged that he would face little resistance in Transoxiana and invaded in March 1360. As predicted, most of the tribal emirs declared their support for him immediately. However, there were three main tribes that decided to flee. You guessed it, yes, the big three, the Barlas, Ulus, and Jalir, with Timur also following his tribal leader. Now, just to clear up one minor fact that I remember seeing popping up here and there, is that fleeing wasn't necessarily a bad thing amongst these groups. It was actually a smart tactic, very similar to the feigned retreat. Sometimes you need to take a step back in order to take two steps forward. And this was one of those instances. The tribal leaders left the region Knowing that they couldn't compete with the incoming Mogul Khan. As the Barlas tribe escaped the region, with Timur, of course, in tow following his tribal leader, not too far out they reached the Oxus River, today called the Amu River. Timur asked for an audience with Haji Beg and asked permission to return to Kesh so that he could maintain order within the Barlas region and at least attempt to negotiate a peaceable solution with Togulu. At least, this is the rationale he proposed to Haji Beg, with his true intentions clearly being something else. Because here was Timur at his absolute best, playing mind games, and again demonstrating his opportunistic approach. An early showing of his excellent assessment of timing. And he instead ended up pledging his loyalty to the Mughal Khan. Timur obviously had a strong following and prominent standings within the Barlas tribe, but he was also known among several members of the Mughal elite, which resulted in Tugulu appointing him as ruler of the Barlas region on behalf of the Mughals. This was a risky yet shrewd calculation by Timur changing his loyalties and offering his services up to the Moguls to keep the region in check from any potential warring or uprising against the invaders. In the meantime, after having despoiled the region of plunder and establishing a homegrown ally to rule the region on their behalf via Timur, the Moguls abandoned the region and headed back to Mogulistan. However, without the strength of Tagulu's forces around, Timur began looking to drum up support, knowing that the three powerful tribal leaders, Haji Beg, and Bayezid, would use this opportunity to reassert their hold on the region. Timur was able to obtain the support of some of the smaller to mid-level tribes in the region, some of these being hostile to the big three. However, he knew that this would not be enough to stop the triumvirate. As expected Baizid, Zeldiz and Hajibeg returned to the Chatagai Khanat in an effort to regain control of the region and immediately began by attacking the biggest tribes that Timur had rallied to his cause. When Timur heard of this, he moved his army in support of those that had threw in their lot with him and the two sides met in battle with the big three emerging victorious. Worse still, any support within the Barlaws tribe that Timur had drummed up as the leader melted away with mass defections, and the reassertion of Haji Beg as the tribal chief. And this resulted in a snowball effect. The desertion led to further desertion, with Timur's army unraveling right before his eyes. Timur was clearly in a tough spot. Although he still had some remaining troops and some of the smaller tribes that were loyal to him, his army must have been severely depleted and war-weary, with no home base to rest and gain reinforcements. But he had one more card up his sleeve that he could play, strong enough to defeat his enemies, although he probably did not want to play it because doing so would diminish his own value and attempts to become the sole leader of Transoxiana. So he did what he had to, and he sent communications to Tugulu, the Khan of Mughalistan, requesting assistance. In the spring of 1361, Tugulu again invaded the area. But things were a little different now, and the big three decided to go after this a different way and actually pledge their allegiance to the invading Khan. When Bayezid and Seldes initially decided to meet with Tugulu, he had them executed, which prompted Haji Beg to change his mind in terms of his approach. He fled into neighboring Khorasan, but en route, things didn't work out too well for him because he ended up being killed in a side battle with some regional tribes. Thus, the threat of the Big Three was ended forever. With that completed, Tugulu then gave Timur command of the region a second time. But then shortly after, he also ended up installing his son, Elias Koja, as ruler over Transoxiana. Timur, of course, raised his objections, having expected to be put in charge outright, but Tugulu disagreed, leaving Timur with very little choice in the matter. The Mughal Khan furthered his conquest of the area. And not really caring much for Timur's alliances with Hussein, Tugulu then entered into northern Afghanistan and defeated Hussein, pushing him out of Balkh and causing Hussein to flee. So at this point, we had Ilyas Koja at the helm in Transoxiana. In addition to that, the occupying Mogulistan forces were regularly and ruthlessly laying waste to the region, attempting to squeeze as much plunder out of the region as possible. Timur didn't really have many options around him. So what to do? Timur attempted to use his position to stage a coup to oust Koja from his rulership. But this whole thing unraveled and Timur was identified as being in rebellion. He didn't have adequate forces to defend his claim or position, so he fled. Timur and his small group of followers were fugitives and on the run, and managed to make it into neighboring Khorizam. While on the run in the deserts of Khorizam evading the Mughals, Timur learned that Hussein was also on the run, his brother-in-law, and former brother-in-arms, and was eventually able to make contact with Hussein. Timur and Hussein were reunited in Khorizam. They reaffirmed and re-established their alliance, and started talking about how they were going to take back the region. Now, it would have almost certainly been a death sentence to return directly back to Transoxiana. The occupying Mughalistan forces were just too big and too strong, And at this point, they only had about 60 warriors between them. Thus, bringing us back to the story that we looked at right at the top end of this episode. While situated in Korazem, Timur and Hussein started deliberating on the sequence of steps that they would take to regain their homeland. While camped out on their defensible hill, they observed a cloud of dust arising into the horizon. Scouts were sent out and came back to inform them that Koja's forces, almost 1,000 horsemen strong, were coming to mop them up. Timur and Hussein took up a defensive posture and awaited the impending onslaught. The mogul forces, seeing the small force awaiting them atop the hill, wasted no time and charged headlong into the battle, being that they did outnumber them 10 to one. Although the battle involved relatively few in number, the affair was monumental and a bloody slog. Charge after charge, arrows being discharged with reckless abandon, the defenders fought with the fury of desperation. By the time evening came on, the attack stopped. Amazingly, the attackers paid dearly for their assaults. With their numbers being reduced to approximately 150 whereas the defenders had been whittled down to 12 people shortly after this brief pause timur and hussein were able to somehow miraculously ward off one final wave of assault and by the time that the Mughal forces retired for the night the defenders were left with only seven mounted and three on foot including timur one of his wives, and Hussein. As night came on, to stay on that hill would have been a death sentence. So Timur and Hussein and their much reduced retinue escaped from their defensive position and melted into the nighttime desert. Realizing that their prey had left, the mogul forces commenced their pursuit. However, they lost the trail and Timur and Hussein were able to make their escape. What followed over the next couple of months was an extremely rough and stark existence, wandering through the desert and an occasional village and scavenging to stay alive. One night, while camped out in the desert, a local tribe led by Ali Beg Gurbani surrounded the small group. Timur gave up, knowing that fighting their way out was untenable, and they submitted to Ali Beg. Ali Beg separated the group and subjected Timur and his wife to a dilapidated cowshed, swarming with fleas and vermin, for two months of extreme misery. This certainly marked the bottom of the barrel for Timur, the extreme low point in his life, and could have marked an unceremonious end in what had once been such a promising career. Despite all the enemies, that Timur had gained over the years, his exploits and bravery were still widely known and admired. And he also had some advocates, which provided the key turn of fortune in this miserable spot. Mohammed Beg Gurbani, Ali Beg's brother, he sent a letter to his brother imploring him to give Timur his freedom, along with some gifts to spur the release, to which Ali Beg obliged. Timur and his small group were allowed to go free, and again made their way into the deserts of Korzem, selecting this territory due to its inhospitable and wide expanses, making it easier to keep escaping from any potential foes. During this time, Timur started attracting small groups of followers to join his cause, traveling from village to village, and providing meager gifts to encourage soldiers to his banner. Not to mention the obvious fame and charisma that he must have carried. I mean, people must have been kind of crazy to join up with this fledgling group. Before long, Timur and Hussein's army increased to about 200, including both horse and foot soldiers. But this number was not nearly sufficient for their long-term goals. So Hussein headed off to his tribal lands in Kandahar to rally more troops to join their cause. And Timur intended on doing the same thing. He knew they had to increase the strength of their army if they were to make any gains against the Mogulistan occupiers of Transoxiana. So throwing caution to the wind, Timur went back to his stomping grounds of Kesh and also to Samarkand to call more partisans to their ranks. But this was such a risky venture given the enemy's presence in their homeland. The risk proved fruitful, and they were somehow able to make their way back to Kesh and Samarkand. Their soldier count, swelling to over 2,000, due in part to some of the smaller tribes and, and warlords in the region being fed up with the Mughals and their brutally consistent practices, it was increasingly clear that the scent of rebellion was ripe in the air. Under the cover of night, Timur and some of his closest soldiers snuck into Samarkand, and began blowing on the embers of rebellion, recruiting more warriors to their cause. However, these actions also resulted in awareness from the occupiers. But Timur was not ready to strike just yet, and left the city with haste, but had managed to supplement his strength. They headed far south, out of Transoxiana and out of the reach of the Moguls, to southeastern Khorasan into the mountainous, wild region of what today would be the borderlands of Iran and Afghanistan. Shortly after, Hussein then rejoined with Timur, bringing additional forces in tow. They took up residence in those wildlands and used that time to figure out their next steps. In the next episode, we'll see Timur and Hussein begin their short career as mercenaries, wherein Timur will receive the grievous injuries that mark him for life, giving him the namesake, Timur the Lame. Then we'll jump to Timur and Hussein's upwards climb, engaging in a series of monumental battles with the occupying moguls, leading towards the liberation of Transoxiana. But in doing so, also revealing the cracks in the veneer of timur and hussein's alliance culminating into a bitter and deadly standoff for rulership of the region and much much more to come in the next episode of the warlords of history podcast theme music by AudioNautics.com. if you want to support the podcast there's a number of ways you can do so You can subscribe on whichever platform you happen to access the show on. I would certainly appreciate a 5-star rating if you found this episode informative or entertaining. And lastly, you can head over to the show's website, warlordsofhistory.com, where I'll include some additional info, like images and maps pertaining to this episode for your viewing pleasure. And where, if you are so inclined, you can also sponsor the show directly with 10% of the monthly listener contributions going towards charitable causes, namely providing equipment, resources, and training towards sustainable agricultural practices in developing countries. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode.